a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 89 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the sportscasting business. Follow the show on Twitter by following me at Radio underscore Logan. Also, if you would rate or review the show on iTunes, I would appreciate it very much. Also, retweets and shares are greatly appreciated and help the show grow. So give it a retweet if you like it. And if you don't, well, just don't tell me what you did. This week, our guest is Ghazal Hassan. He is the basketball voice of Cal State University Northridge, or CSUN, and also the baseball voice of Cal Riverside. Before we get to the interview, this is a kind of the downtime of the season, and I don't really mind it after the big grind of football and basketball season where night after night after night, you're either preparing or calling a game. I haven't done anything involving sports since the Final Four, and it's it's really been kind of nice. I've been scheduled to do one softball game. It got snowed out. I have a baseball game tomorrow. And it will be the first time I've done a game since the National Juco Tournament about a third of the way through March. So it's been a little while. I've had a nice break, but I'm starting to get the itch again and ready to get back into it and get a little bit of baseball experience. I had the opportunity to do quite a bit of baseball my first three years in the business in Denison, Iowa, but since then, really very little. Probably could count all of them on two hands. So not a lot of baseball and softball, and I'm excited to get to dip my toes into those waters. I also expect to do some lacrosse play-by-play sometime here in the spring. That should be fun, and I'm really unfamiliar with the sport, so I actually went to Amazon and bought lacrosse for dummies, and I'm in the process of reading it right now just to get a good baseline of what the rules are and the terminology and get a little bit of an understanding before diving headfirst into a broadcast. But uh, again, not a whole lot of an update, so we're going to have a nice short open here and get right to the interview with Gasol Hassan. And Gasol, thanks so much for coming on. Great to be on, uh, Logan. I feel like uh, the old Groucho Marx line, I've seen your recent spate of guests, and I'm wondering, why is he having me on? Has he run out of human beings? But no, it's, it's, fun, to, it's fun to be on here. I've had a number of friends have told me how much fun they've had, and I hope to have as much fun as they have. Well, now there's a lot of pressure on me for that. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I wanted to bring up when I was reading up on you is there is a a list of the top 10 play-by-play broadcasters in the Los Angeles area, and they list you as number nine. And How about that? <laughs> I know it's... Uh, that that's an that's a market with a lot of really good broadcasters. How much of an honor is that for you? It is, you know. Uh, Tom Hofarth comes up with the list, and uh, it, part of the reason that it's so cool is I've been reading Tom for twenty years. You know, I've been reading Tom since I moved to LA. Uh, he used to be with the LA Daily News. 
He recently moved to the LA Times. And, you know, you know how lists are, because you read lists when you're not on. And you're like, how did that guy get on the list? Then you get on the list. And the first thing you're like, you're honored. And uh, then all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, I, I'm better than this guy, I'm better than that guy. Uh, no, the, here I'll tell you the story about that. I found out about it. Um, I was on the road with uh, UC, uh, with CSUN Basketball. We were going to Hawaii. So the list comes out. He does the list like at the end of February. There's a number of lists. There's play-by-play guys. He does analysts. He does talk show hosts. He does all that stuff, right? So we fly on a Thursday, and the list comes out on Thursday morning. So I'm on a plane to Hawaii. I get to Hawaii, and I get a couple of messages on my phone, a couple of Twitter messages, some text messages. Hey, man, congratulations. And I'm thinking, congratulations for what? Like going to Hawaii, you know, maybe they know it's my annual trip to Honolulu. And then it was Rashawn Haylock who had tweeted me, said, hey, man, you made Whole Farts list, you know. So, of course, I'm in the hotel room scrambling. And they were the flight was a weird situation because our flight was delayed and we got there late. And because we were there late, the bus was delayed to get there to pick us up to get to the hotel. So anyway, yeah, it was cool. Uh, you know, one of those things you're like, wow, you're kind of shocked about it. And Tom does a really cool, cool thing. He kind of links to your Twitter account and should, you know, has a, has a link to something that you've done recently. And we just, I just put up some video from a game that I'd done a couple days ago. Um, and it was cool, uh, you know. Yeah, it was it was a cool little thing, and most of the guys on there are either on TV or they're on, um, you know, Dodgers and Lakers and Rams. So it was cool for me. I kind of felt like a delegate for all the little guys. Remember the scene in Hoosiers when they say, "Let's win this one for all the little schools that never got a chance to be here." That's kind of how I felt. And then you know, in my in my uh, listing. In my panel in the uh, in the column, he did list some other you know up and coming guys who I knew and work with, and and that was pretty cool. So you're like Ollie shooting underhand free throws of that list. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not, it's funny because I I'm not really a huge Hoosiers fan. I'm more of a fast break guy, but uh, yeah, put throw that in there, absolutely. So one of the things that I find interesting about what he did with that list is that it's. It's a list. It matters very little in the grand scheme of things. But one of the things that he spotlighted was, you know, this is the guy who's up and coming, but just hasn't had a break. I don't remember the exact phrasing, but he said something like that. How frustrating or how do you handle the frustration of, you know, being recognized as being at the level as some of the top people in the industry, but not, not having a job that some of them some of those type of broadcasters have. Um, it's fu- it's funny you bring that up because I actually, I was texting with a friend of mine who ha- he she's a therapist. And so she's like, Oh, so cool to see you on the list. I'm like, yeah, I'm glad we talked today because by the time I see you, I'll probably have dismissed it. Um, it I guess it's not frustrating because I, I think I'm where I need to be. You know, um, I'm doing, hundred events a year. I'm doing a number of different sports, you know, uh, people know, you know, people around town know who I am. So that's the good part of it. You know, I, the, it's funny. I had a conversation with a coach a few years ago and it was a guy who'd been pretty successful at division one coach. And then, you know, 
AD changed and whatnot, and they moved on. They wanted to go a different direction, and he'd been in it. So he had to go take an assistant job, and I'm like, wow, you know, this guy actually got teams to the postseason. He got NCAA Burts, and here he is kind of scraping along as an assistant. And he said, you know, I, I'm good because I know I'll get the opportunity again. I just enjoy being on it with a team, and I enjoy coaching, and I enjoy working with the players. And, you know, and part of it's like, yeah, the guy's saying the right things. But I think deep down he really believes that. And, you know, I think if you're your position as well, like there's only so much we can control. So I don't control who gets hired. I apply for, you know, every job I can, but I don't control who does the hiring. Uh, I think it's just about getting out and doing the best job you can at what you're supposed to do, you know. So that's kind of how I deal with it. I mean, I know a lot of guys are on that list, and I respect a lot of guys are on that list. And just in general, as you know, you 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 meet a lot of people. Your relationships are with a lot of other broadcasters, and um, it's generally a pretty friendly group. You know, it's a friendly fraternity to be in. I don't know what your experience has been, but it's generally a pretty cool fraternity to be in. So I just I'm I'm grateful for that and I appreciate what I'm able to do. And I've had friends that moved up. And sometimes when you move up, it's not the grass isn't always as green. You make a little bit more money and you're a little more high profile, but it comes with a degree of stress as well. So not that I'm afraid of that kind of a challenge, but right now it's great for me. I do these jobs and I can pretty much, you know doesn't disrupt my life a whole lot. But yeah, I, I would I relish the the opportunity, the next level, a bigger challenge for sure. So I usually start off the podcast with this question, but what was your entry point into sports casting? At what point in your life did you know that you had caught the bug? I'm still I'm still thinking about it. Uh I talk to my mom every morning. She's still suggesting other careers. Um you know, I knew like it's at a young age, you know, I think we discussed this before, but at a young age, I, I was interested in, in in broadcasting in general, but it just seemed like not something that, you know, I could do. There weren't a lot of people that looked like me doing this thing. Um, but you know, I, I remember I did my first in college, I really kind of figured out it was it was I went to college, I did radio, and the radio station when I where I went to college was more of music oriented. Sports was kind of an afterthought. So I get there and I have all these grand designs of the show I'm going to do, but it takes some time to work the politics and get on the air. And then one day I was just sitting at the station between classes. I was like, hey, can somebody and any, somebody here know enough to do a women's basketball game? And I figured I knew nothing about women's basketball at the time, but I figured, hey, it's an opportunity to get on the air. So I went to the sports director. She gave me a 30-second interview and said, okay, you're hired be here at this time and that was the first time so probably the reality of it was maybe in college you know i after i'd done a a bunch of events and then you know i was doing a variety of things right out of college um but probably if i'm being perfectly honest probably my second or third year at csun i was was like you know what this is this is you know this is a possibility i I'm, i'm doing it and i'm doing it every day and I'm doing games and the guys, other guys seem to, who have been in it a lot longer than I have, seem to think I'm okay at it and I enjoy doing it. And it's a, something that, I, that I'm that i working towards getting better at. 
So that was kind of how the, the process came about. So this is a unique version of the, the podcast, and to just be perfectly uh, forthcoming with all of the listeners, this is actually the second time we've done this podcast because we had some issues with the audio uh, the first time. So I'm able to to pretend like I'm asking new questions that are based on your answers from the last time. But you received a combo turntable and radio as a gift as an eight-year-old that you wore out listening to Yankees games. What influence did that gift have on you eventually becoming what you are? My uncle gave me the gift and I didn't, you know, like, it's funny because I really, when I, I guess seven, eight, nine was the age I really got into sports and my niece is nine years old now. And I'm trying to like see myself through her eyes as a nine-year-old kind of the things she's into. And she's into very different things that, that at her age that I was into at the same age. So it was a cool thing because that's when I started consuming sports on the radio. So I'm glad you brought that up. And my uncle basically got it for me and I had a couple records. We'd listen to like, I had some Spider-Man records. You'd follow along in the comic, Captain America, Planet of the Apes, among others. The team, he had a black mark with a marker on where the Yankee station was. And so I knew to turn to that station to listen to the Yankees. My birthday's in May, so it was middle of baseball season. And um, so the other thing was there was also a sports, you know, sports talk. They used to do a three-hour sports talk show before all the Yankee games. So um, a guy named Art Russ Jr., he, he was – you know, old sportscaster, but sports talk was very different in the sense that it wasn't like it is now where there's stations programmed completely with sports talk. It was, you know, WABC and they would do, you know, news talk all day. And there was one, there was one sports talk show and it'd be on before the Yankee game. So, you know, and he was a, he'd been a sports writer and a sports caster and he'd been involved in like, he talked about a lot of things like music and, art and you know the harlem renaissance and i learned a lot about that kind of stuff through this show but that was my gateway into you know i'd listen to the yankees i'd listen to the nets and then later on it was you know hockey and 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 football all that stuff so i became kind of a radiophile uh just listening to different modes of entertainment on the radio coupled with you know my parents very restrictive uh thought of children watching TV should be very restricted. Um, so I would retreat to the the phonographs or the rate or the radio. And that's kind of how I learned to consume sports uh, from about, you know, probably till I was in high school. You know, I think you've kind of alluded to this a little bit that maybe a certain family members don't necessarily approve of the, the career path that you're pursuing. Is that, was that the case or is that still the case? No, nah, it's not. A, I mean, it's they're they're fine. They would be fine with everything. It's it's understanding. Like I don't, you know, I don't ever. You don't discuss the business. Uh, it's hard. It's hard for them. They're you know, it's hard for them. Most of the people in my family are very well educated and professional, and it's it's you know, it's hard. It, it, it's their expectation was, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer, that kind of stuff. It's pretty pretty standard in that kind of the immigrant thing. But obviously now it's changing a little bit. But I, you know, I'm obviously older. I'm not. I'm not a young, you know a young whippersnapper anymore. The way I was, so um, I wouldn't say disapproval. I'm just like lack of understanding. Like what's what's the basis? I mean, heck, you and I are in the industry, and I wake up some days and I don't think, wow, what you know, what a business we're in. How did how did such you know? I'm sure you've had these. How did such and such happen moments as well? 
So it's a hard business to explain to somebody who's not in the business. <laughs> yeah, that was uh, definitely the conversation that we had to have when I said, hey, I'm just going to quit my job and move to Minneapolis. Yeah. You have a job? No. Nope. <laughs> uh, they got it, though. They've obviously been very supportive. But um, moving across the country, you're originally from New Jersey and yeah. kind of planting yourself in Los Angeles to go to school and build a career. What was the thought process behind that? There was really no thought process. There was, I have an opportunity and uh, my father's a college professor. So in the name of education, he said, well, you know what? Try it for a year. doesn't work. I mean, you know, he is, I was trying to be very supportive. I don't think he really understood what my intent was because I really didn't understand what my intent was. He said, well, okay, this is a good opportunity. Go try it. If it doesn't work out, there's plenty of opportunities for you back here. And it luckily worked out, and I ended up being able to go to grad school as well. And here I am, one of the top 10 play-by-play guys in Los Angeles some 20-some years later. You you mentioned not necessarily having a real firm idea of what you wanted to do when you went off to college, but uh, writing was a part of whatever that vague not plan of a plan was, what was the process of wanting to be a writer and then deciding you didn't want to anymore? I'm stealing this from somebody. I forget who said it, but somebody says, nobody chooses to be a writer. You rather succumb to it. I think it was a British writer that said that. Um, I had won, when I was in high school, I was like the ace of the student paper. So I'd won some award in writing the student paper. But obviously, writing in general is different than, you know, writing for this middle-of-the-road high school paper. I I got involved with a comedy group. Um, same deal. I just kind of stumbled into it, like want, wanting to make friends. I'm like, oh, I fancy myself as, as a bit of a, a bon vivant. So let me find other people who are similar to, to I. Um the UC Irvine Comedy Club was an offshoot of the UCLA Comedy Club because it was it was uh, uh, the advisor was the same gentleman, and he's a bit of like a quasi celebrity because the story's been twisted. But so Shane Black, who wrote um, Lethal Weapon, was in the UCLA Comedy Club, and either so this, this, this so I, the gentleman who ran who, who started the UCLA Comedy Club, who I never met, was a guy named Jim Burge. And supposedly he wrote Lethal Weapon while Shane Black wrote Lethal Weapon while living on Jim Burge's couch. Now, the story has since been twisted that it was Shane's house. But I, I have a pretty good authority that Shane was crashing on Jim's couch when he wrote the script. So long story short, I went in there and I just I met some of the uh, first friends that I had at UC Irvine. And I'm actually friendly friends with most of those guys still today. Uh, and it was a cool little thing. We workshop material, and they ended up being a lot of the you know actors on my sketch comedy show. It's how how that worked. Um, and yeah, I just um, I took I took a number of short story writing classes when I was at UC Irvine. It was pretty cool. It was probably the best. You know, it was outside of my major, and so I didn't really know anybody in there. And it was real kind of you had to really kind of get inside to really kind of express and. The, the grad program at the time, which I think still is, the writing program at UC Irvine is one of the better ones in the country. So the instructors we're dealing with were high-end, you know, 
there are a lot of great novelists have come through those programs over there. Um, so that's kind of how I started off. And then my last semester there, between my work schedule and my class schedule, I needed one class that met one day a week. So I could only, you know, and Wednesday was the open day for me. I needed something that was between 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. And there was a screenwriting class taught by a woman named Marie Cartier. And I'm like, all right, there you go. I'm taking that class. And so um, I had a friend of mine take the class with me. And it was just a really cool thing. Like we weren't, you know, we were kind of the outliers in the class. Everybody else there was like a film or theater major. We were not. So it was fun to kind of be the outsider in that class. And uh, it was, you know, to, 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 to get in there and really um, try to, you know, try to create something out of nothing, man, it's the hardest thing imaginable. Um, but uh, my initial intent, like everybody else, I mean, I was a philosophy major undergrad, which I swear by now because critical thought is so pivotal now in the way society is, but um, I was going to go to law school. That was my whole thing. I, I applied to law school. I got into a couple of law schools and just, I wasn't feeling it is, is, so I said, I'm going to take a year off and then I'll decide next year. And that never happened. So instead of going to law school, you end up going to film school at UCLA. So you move on from being a writer. Maybe not move on isn't the right word, but, and well, yeah, you had so, developed, you developed your interest in sports casting and you wanted to get the, the film side. So what happened, what happened was I'd done like, I was doing some freelance intern stuff just out of school, local, like locally, like local high school football. I did like a, like a, a local talk show on a very small sports station. And I was doing, um, I was doing some fill-in work. Uh, it was, I was an intern, you know, like uh, even though I was out of school, I was an intern and I was doing some fill-in work at a, at a local station and, um, they were, so I didn't, so I didn't think is I didn't understand the business. Okay. So they were, they were cutting people because they were trying to save money, you know? So I was cheap and they're like, Hey, it was, it was summer. Hey, we're going to put you on the air. You know, you're pretty good. We're going to put you on the air. And I didn't cost them anything. So. I started doing shows and filling in here and there and uh, had a couple of what I thought were pretty good shows. And then the morning show opened up and I applied for the morning show and people were telling me, Hey, you know, the program so-and-so thinks you're pretty good and you should apply. And, you know, and I, I, I had no clue how the business worked. You know, I didn't know that that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not like any other business, you know? So when you apply, there's a hundred other people who actually have experience who are applying, you know? So, I ended up not getting the job and I got angry. I mean, I'd only been there, you know, I'd been there six months. Like, what was I expecting? Right. And so I'm like, well, you know what? Hell with you. I'm going to go find something else to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't paying my bills. So I had a day job at the time. So that was kind of what I was doing. And then I said, okay, yeah, um, let's apply to, let's apply to grad school. And I had taken a class with uh, a writing class with a woman named Linda Voorhees who had, she's an award-winning writer. She's written a bunch of stuff. She actually was a consultant on the sequel, not the original Lion King, but the Lion King 2. She came up with a lot of those, those things in the Lion King 2 and had worked for, you know, for Pixar. Um, she wrote me, she had, so she'd gotten, been just been named a faculty at UCLA. She wrote me my letter and I had a script that I'd written for her that I sent in. And uh, after screwing up my, my, in, my phone interview, I somehow miraculously got admitted to UCLA film school in the writing program. And it was pretty, that was a pretty amazing experience as well. 
So how are you able to use all of these writing and performing and just overall, you know, entertainment business skills to make your broadcast stronger? Okay, so at this point in my life, Logan, I want to be David Letterman, okay? So it's a lot of, you know, the key to me at that point was how do you learn? How do you use them now? Okay. It's, well, I'm saying it's the same skill. It's the key is to, you know, like when you watch a really good movie, it's like it's really happening. So the key is to be able to write stuff. And a lot of guys do it. You know, the, the guy, there are a lot of high level guys in sports do this. You're writing stuff beforehand, but, and you're delivering it and it's not sounding scripted, you know? Um, I equate it to the rappers who freestyle. They all have their little pet phrases when they're freestyling, they've come up with, but it's how you execute it. Um, I, 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 we talked about this before. I swear by my writing skills in the sense that, um, so what I do when I, when I do a broadcast is I have my, my spot charts like everybody else does. And then I'll write out four or five index cards, uh, four by six index cards with storylines, but also, I'll throw in some freight, you know, I'll listen to myself. I'll give you an example. I did a baseball game on Tuesday and um, I was cutting the highlights and I realized that I'd used the term for hard hit ball. I used tattooed three times, which isn't good. You want to vary your, you know, you talk about it in your, in your blog, you want to vary vocabulary. So that's kind of something it helps out with is, I, I, you learn to write things differently. You're not going to use the same verb twice in a sentence. You're going to change how you reference things. It's it's kind of the structure of it. Um, and it's weird because as, as when I was young, coming up as a writer, I was kind of really hesitant about like really embracing structure. But what structure does, it kind of allows you to to lock in on how you present things and gives you you know a framework to how to present it actually frees you up more than you'd think. Um, but I think any broadcaster worth his salt has some kind of a writing background to understand how to present certain things. How do you do a pregame show? Stuff like that. How do you structure when you're coming back and got to do a halftime, you know, show guy like me, like at my, at our level, I'm doing everything, you know, we're doing the pregame, we're doing the halftime, we're doing the postgame. We're not able to toss it to a studio like Westwood One or maybe a bigger, you know, Power Five school. So um, just in terms of sequencing and having that clever phrase here and there that you come up with, uh, I think is, is, is imperative. And they, they, every everybody tells you the writing is kind of where it all starts. If you're going to be broadcaster, play-by-play, whatever you're going to do. That's kind of the base, the basis of, of any, everything we do. The Hollywood writer strike indirectly led to you getting your first big break into Division One broadcasting. Explain that story. Okay, fade in, fade out. So, um, I had a. Movie You're so made. Hollywood with that comment, by the way. I had, I had, I had a movie. Made. <laughs> I had a movie made when I was just out of film school. It was a small movie. I made a little bit of money on it. And nobody saw it. It did. It did run in the United States, but there were some union problems. And but it was, you know, it was a hit overseas. You know, and the guy actually who produced it made a couple other movies after that. Um, so at that point, I've been working with writing with a comic um, 
Paul, I was, was a house writer for Paulie Shore and his company. And we were working on, there was a TV show and there was a feature script that I worked on with him. And then I was working on some projects with a couple of actor buddies of mine that were getting some traction. Uh, there was a feature project, there was a TV project. And then it was a 2007, um, the writer strike, the first, you know, the last big writer strike happened. And they tell us that, you know, you don't have to stop writing, but obviously, you know, all negotiations are going to stop because we got to figure out this contract. And streaming was the big issue back then, which is huge now, obviously, because everything is streaming. It was the money on streaming things. Um, so I had about three, and it was really, it was really kind of a letdown. It was because I had three projects that were active that was really hustling on trying to get going and just get some money out of them. You know, and I, I, I was I was a guy who was really good at picking up little gigs, you know, two thousand dollars here, five thousand dollars here, and I got pretty good at that for a while. But I'm like, you know, I'd love to have something that I just work on for three or four months and get paid on. It wasn't happening, so I'd actually take I took a job, a day job in marketing, just to make sure I was making money. And um, they said, you know, we could be out a while. Think of what you might want to do. Um, you know, we may be out a while. So I just randomly came across this class. It was a, it was at Santa Monica College, a junior college in in the city, you know, outside of L.A. And it was sports cat, you know, sports casting, and it was kind of a catch all class. It, it, it was, but it, it said it was going to focus on play by play. I'm like, all right, here's something that I could go do once a week for the next twelve or thirteen weeks, and you know, my schedule. And the gentleman who taught it was a guy named Lou Riggs. And Lou Riggs is a big guru in uh, the ter- uh, in, in you know sports casting, but specifically play by play. He's worked with a lot of big time play by play guys, uh, just in terms of you know he was a consultant with Fox, and they would usually ex athletes. They would need some polish. They would send him to Lou, and he would take them through. I, I think one of his big Stephen A. Smith was one of his clients, and he, he told me that the guy you see on the air now is completely different from the guy that I knew when I was working with him. Because he had to learn to do that anyway. So I take this class and, you know, you're just meeting. There's a bunch of people and it's it's at a junior college, but 80% of the people in the class are people who've already finished college and are a little bit older trying to either transition into the industry they have, or have a little bit of experience trying to get a leg up. And so one of our assignments was to go do a game. So I go and I do a, a play-by, and I've done it, you know, I've done it before in college. Um, to do play-by-play of a junior college basketball game. So I go up in the stands with a little recorder and I record the basketball game, you know, hand it in for the, for a project, for my, my grade or whatever. And I get an email from Lou that says, hey, if you want, there's an ex-student of mine who knows of a job available doing women's basketball. I don't know if you'd be interested, but see, you see, see what happens, you know? So this is... So he tells me about it in end of the year. So our class is ending. It was late, mid to late May. So I go and before I had any kind of editing software. So what to do, right? Um, I had this on a on a. I think I had it on a cassette. I don't think I had. I owned a digital recorder at that time. I convert I somehow converted to a digital file, and I I get it down to you know what I think is a workable um, demo. And I send it off to a gentleman named John Ramey. And then I don't hear anything for three months. And then 
Three months later, I get an email from a gentleman named Stan Morrison, who at the time was the athletic director at the University of California, Riverside. They're looking for a women's basketball broadcaster. And I go to meet with them. And he hired me on the spot. And I knew Stan a little bit because when I was an undergrad, Stan had been the head coach at San, uh, at San Jose State men's basketball. Um, I mean, I didn't know him well, but I so much that I, you know, dropped a couple of names of his ex-players that I knew and got me in the door. So that was that was the so what ha- what had happened was John Ramey had been the voice of women's hoops at UC Riverside. They were going to make him the men's voice, and the women's job opened up. I applied for it and I got it, and the rest, Logan, as they say, is history. So eventually, picking up your current job at CSUN, Cal State University, Northridge, go Matadors, you ended up getting the job in part because the first choice wouldn't take a drug test. And it's just... That was a TV gig. That oh, okay. TV. Well, well, just tell that story, because that's a fantastic story. Um, so I had done, I'd done a couple of games, um for local tv out in riverside so they were trying to figure out what they wanted to do and they were going to do some local sports they did a couple of ucr games and so i actually worked a couple games with john ramey doing those games and so when they finally decided that we're gonna do a slate of high school football games um i got a call and um to do it and i'm like of course you know great it was it was was a time in my life when i kind of needed something new and um, so I was like, okay, I'm in. And they had a couple of guys they were working with. Like, yeah, we have two or three play-by-play guys, whatever. So in the end, it was me and one other guy. We split the package the first year. And I come to find out that part of the reason that I was bought in is because the, it's it's a city it's a city channel. So if you work for the city of Riverside, I don't know if that's the case now. This is back in 2012. You needed to take a drug test. A urine, a urine test, and um, you know, if we're speaking practically, I'm you know I'm a I think it's an invasion of privacy as you know I'm, I'm opposed to those things, but at the time, hey, it's a job, it pays pretty well, it's TV, so I you know I'll, I'll compromise on, on this little thing, and but anyway, yeah, I found out later that the, the they had they had they had another person who they who they they'd chosen who they wanted to bring in, and that individual declined to take the drug test so because you know it was like they called you you know the game started in late august so they call you like in the middle of july do you want to do it okay and then you send your stuff in it's an online application and they call you back like early to mid-august so they're you know between the time they're going to hire you and the time you're going to work is about two week a two-week window so they don't they don't spring the drug test on you till you're through the screening process and that's how i um you know, ended up on that job, which I am still at Knockwood seven years later. Um, but as far as the transition from Riverside to CSUN, we always talk about relationships and broadcasting. And so obviously I didn't know John Ramey when I got hired at Riverside, but obviously since then he's one of my, become one of my best friends as we work together at Riverside. And now obviously he's doing great things at Nevada. But as far as the transition from Riverside to CSUN, that also played in a little bit relationship wise in that, an assistant coach that I work with at UC Riverside, Jason Flowers, had been an assistant for the men's for the women's team at UC Riverside. Got the head coaching job at CSUN. Um, the I got a chance to call an NCAA tournament in 2010. Riverside went to the tournament on the women's side, and then Jason 
parlayed that into the job at CSUN. And then a couple of years later, he called me to recruit me and I can see why he gets good players. Um, and I knew some of the people over there and it was closer to my house. I live about, you know, 20 minute drive from CSUN, whereas Riverside can be an hour to an hour and a half, depending on traffic in Southern California. But that's kind of how it worked out is that Jason calls me and I knew most of the people in the sports information media relations department at CSUN already from being in the conference. And it was a closer drive to my house. And it was just kind of, there were some things going on in life at that time that I'm like, you know what, this is a good time to make the move. And I made the move over there, did women's hoops for one season. And then the next year, Learfield came in and they reorganized everything on the broadcast side at CSUN. And I was given an opportunity to take the men's job, which I've held since then. We've had numerous discussions over probably about the last year, year and a half. And one of the things that you have repeated a couple times that I've found interesting is you kind of flip the old cliche. It's not what you know, it's who you know, to it's not what you know, it's who knows you. And you've been really successful in picking up a, you know, a wide variety of freelance work. What have you done to get people to know you? I wish I knew. Because there are jobs I want that I'm not getting. I'm like, what am I doing wrong in those jobs? Um, you know, it, it's the typical thing about relationships because you never know when something's going to be – you're going to hear about something. And it's a little joke I tell. People say, well, what's the key? Because I work with a team, you know. So I, I work with CSUN and I work with UCR. And they're like, well, what's the key? And I'm like, well, the keys are to make friends with the sports medicine people and make friends with all the managers and grad assistants because they know everything, right? Those are the guys that will give you – I mean, the coaches are generally pretty forthright, but you want the real nitty-gritty. You ask the managers and you ask the sports medicine people because they know everything. Um, You know, for me, my success, if you could say, is in the conference because um, I just know people in the conference. Just, you know, you're around them every year, right? You go visit – you know, you're, you're home and home in basketball every year, baseball, you you know, it's alternate years where you're going. So you get to know people a little bit and, you know, you're a maven, Logan, on the social media, which is something I've kind of learned about. I, I'm really, you know, I come from a film background where it's like, it's, it's day class say, you don't want to be overly promoting yourself. You know, you're a writer, you have a different perspective, but now in social media, you have tasteful ways where you can say, hey, look at me, you know, um, website, you know, LinkedIn, uh, Twitter. You have these vehicles where people kind of get to know you. Um, so I, do I have any secret formula? No. I just think you do good work. You promote your work when you do it. Um, you meet people. You converse. You try to be interesting, um, you know, Um uh, uh, you know, what's the line the guy has to Darth Vader in Star Wars? You know, all your uh, your religion hasn't hasn't produced those data tapes, you know, in the, fir- in the first movie. And so for all my, you know, my networking and relationships and whatnot, there's still jobs that I would kind of want to aspire to. But um, I don't know if you've experienced this because you're pretty good at the networking thing. I know you said you were uncomfortable when you started, but the worst thing for me is when I genuinely want to help somebody – and they kind of ask the wrong question, you know. Um, and this is non-sports related. I had a like a friend, you know. We have this friend. I had a friend that I knew that I kind of fell out of touch with, and then he kind of ca- reached out to me. He wasn't doing particularly well financially at that point, so 
and and this partially could be me. Uh, I didn't get what he meant. Like I just thought he was like, "Hey, can you get my resume to somebody?" You know, so I'm like, "Okay, yeah, sure, of course, send it to me." And then I, I never got it, and it was like he somehow thought I could spoon feed him into a gig where I was working, which, you know, I mean, at the time I was like, "Well, yeah, I can. I'll take my resume and hand it to my boss, and I'll tell him you're a good dude and try to hire you." But I think he wanted a little more than that, and I, um. I don't know if, you, if you've gone through this, like somebody who reaches out to you and they're like, hey, let me know if anything's available. I'm like, well, I can absolutely do that. But you understand that there are probably 10 people ahead of you that I would tell first. You know, there's no way to really say that without sounding like kind of not good, right? Because I do genuinely want to help people. But at the same time, it, it's, you know, I've written a, can we can we for a freelance opportunity because there were people involved in that opportunity that knew who you were, right? Yeah, so that's kind of that that's, that's an interesting because people don't reach out to me about jobs too often just because, right? I mean, I'm pretty low on the pecking order still at this point, and I just don't necessarily have those connections. And I think most intelligent people can kind of figure that out, but. There's some yeah. people who uh, will ask for advice or sometimes, and I'm just yeah. like, I can tell you what I know but or what I think, but it, it hasn't got me much higher than where you are right now, right. so I always find it to, to be a little <laughs> odd. I, I had a situation this year where somebody asked me who was hiring. They're like, hey, we're in you know, Southern California. It's hard to travel for some of these schools, so a lot of local broadcasters here. It makes sense, and he says, hey – can you suggest somebody to do dot, dot, dot on these dates? And so I rattled off a couple of names for him. And the third name, he's like, oh, yeah, I know that guy. I'll, I'll hire that guy. I'm like, okay, do you need his number? I got his number. You know, So that's kind of how it works, right? Like, it's like most people who are good at what they do, they kind of have a list already. And sometimes they'll call people they know, you know, that, that particular individual was referred to me by somebody I knew. So he – so. Person A called person B and said, hey, we need a guy to cover these three events in Southern California on these dates because our guy has a conflict. And person B said, hey, call my friend in L.A. because he'll refer somebody to you. So I was the third party in on it, and I had guys that I know, obviously, who I know are looking for work. And party A, who I, you know, who, who, who had called, he knew one of the people who I knew. on the, and, that, and that's that's exactly how it works. That's what, exactly how it works. It's interesting because you talked about the guy who just uh, kind of reached out and wanted to be spoon-fed a job. And so I think it comes down to that's a transactional request. It's, will you do this for me, and then we'll be done. Most of the the networking that's been most successful for me, so for example, the one time I did a D1 game was because I met a guy at a conference when we were both covering NAIA, he got a break. He needed a guy to fill in, I think this was two or three years down the road, and then there it was. So it's, I think everybody wants things quickly uh, to, they want to, you know, just get under someone's wing and have them move them up the ladder. And I mean, I guess there are maybe a few instances of that happening, but generally that's kind of a pipe dream. It's time and place. I mean, 
I'll give an example. I got a freelance gig last year for Fresno State through Paul Leffler, who I know you know. And Paul, I was, I met Paul, met, quote unquote, I was driving back from Davis. I'd done baseball or basketball. I forget it was baseball or basketball in Davis. And I was driving home and it was a holiday weekend. I forget which holiday it was. And Fresno State baseball was on the radio. So I, w- I had my, my, my car radio was on scan and stopped at the, you know, and the Central Valley is a pretty bit vast uh, coverage area. So I'm driving back and I listened to Paul and his partner for a couple of hours on the drive home. And I got, I forget it was, I, I emailed him or Twittered him. It probably was email. I got home and I said, Hey man, I enjoyed listening to you. And that's just how it started. And I met him the next, I think the next year, UC Riverside went and played at Fresno state baseball. And I got to meet Paul and we kind of, kind of, you know, remained in contact since then. And it was a situation where CSUN was playing a tournament in Mexico and so was Fresno State was in the same tournament. We were in different sessions at the same event. He wasn't going to be able to go because he had football or something or going on, or I think it was wrestling. They were restarting the wrestling program. And it was just, it was a very kind of tight thing where I had to work it out with CSUN. Are you, do you mind if, because you guys are footing the bill to get me out there. Do you care? If, and then, you know, Learfield's like, don't worry about it. We'll handle it internally. And so I got, you know, and that, that was just, you know, was I intent when I, when I reached out to Paul, listening to him before I knew him on a baseball game, was I intending for him to three or four years later, get me a job? No, but like we, we, you know, it's, it's the, who knows you thing. I, we were, we actually played CSUN had played at Fresno state and he pulls besides say, Hey, let me, let me run this thing by you. You know, let me run this uh, proposal by you. And it, it worked out luckily. In a past discussion, you told me that you had a friend who was at a, in a panel with George Lucas, and he gave a piece of advice oh, on how yeah. to advance through the film industry that yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought was very applicable to yeah. the broadcasting industry. Okay, so I'll preface this. My friend, his name is Steve, a buddy of mine from UCLA. He is the biggest Star Wars fan I know. Just like, not in terms of like kind of fan geekdom, just in terms of knowledge of everything, you know? Like he knows the second assistant director on the Tatooine unit, you know, like, like you'll drop the name for anyway. So his dream was to work for George Lucas and ultimately he ended up working for Spielberg. He got a job with DreamWorks, but that's a whole other story. But his dream since he was 12 years old was to work for George Lucas. So I forget what the circumstances were. It was when the the prequels were coming out. He had an opportunity to go and get a, get a, get a um, audience with George Lucas. Right. So he goes up there and it's, 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 you know, a bunch of Star Wars people. And um, they do a little presentation on the pre on the prequel was just coming out and, you know, this, that, and the other. it was a whole cool, slick little presentation. And then, you know, the emperor comes out, George Lucas comes out and he's going to take questions from the crowd. And so somebody, at, you know, film student, I'm sure asks him, Hey, you know, we obviously want to be where you are. And Steve didn't ask the question. Somebody else asked the question. They said, what would you suggest? What would your advice be? How do you get into the, you know, an entry? What's the entry in? And Lucas, like, apparently was like, took a pause, kind of scanned the audience, kind of scratched his head, played with his watch, and just said, somehow. And I remember my friend being very upset. He said, I drove home. I was angry. I'm like, well, how could you just, you know, that, that's a throwaway answer. You don't care. And then he thought about it, and it's like, what what more appropriate answer? Because my entry isn't going to be the same as your entry, and somebody else's entry. It, it, it's, it, you know, it was kind of a simplistic way to present it, but it was the correct answer in that 
somehow some people get in like you, you know, I got in by doing women's basketball. You know, you, I know you had a great experience recently with the final four being a runner for the final four for Westwood one. Maybe that's how it gets you in, you know, um, somebody else worked, you know, uh, get a number two job in minor league baseball and the number one guy leaves and all of a sudden it's you. So there's, there's all these different stories about how people get in and it's cool. I, I would, you do this and I give you credit for doing this because I've been reluctant. I don't go to a lot of these broadcaster events, but I've started to do it now. I've gone to a couple and it is really interesting when you sit down and talk with other people about how, what their entry was, how did they get in? What was their first job? How are they able to do it? You know, and it varies from person to person. And there's some people, you know, like I was following this college basketball coaching thing at St. John's and, you know, even coaching and guys get in differently, right? Some guys, Lewis is hustling for 20 years and then other guys get in because they're, they were assistants of prominent coaches who were able to get them kind of going, get their careers going. So yeah, I always, that that was always, yeah, I I like that story too, because you can apply it to any I think any facet of life is just what are you going to do? Like, what's your what's your angle? How are you going to approach it? Somehow is a good answer. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed that story. But uh, so one of the things that we did talk about on the first time we tried to record this, and I wanted to talk about it again. I wanted to be a little less clunky just because it's not uh, an easy thing for me to talk about as a Midwest white dude who went to a school with like one minority person in the entire K through 12 student body. And Uh so you talked about being the son of immigrants from Pakistan. And if you do just a Google search of sportscasters, it's a lot of old white guys. Uh, Do you feel like you've had either disadvantages or advantages on the other side, maybe that I wouldn't know or think about uh, from being a minority in the business? I think about that. I mean, I probably both. Um, I think obviously I've been, you know, I I am son of Pakistani immigrants, but I, I largely my life has been fairly privileged, so it's a different perspective for me. Um, but yeah, I, I talked about it earlier when when I was a kid, eight year old me, eight year old me. There weren't a lot of guys that looked like me doing what I do. Now there are more now. Um, you see them on, you know, ESPN's got a number of South Asian broadcasters doing a lot of different things, play by play, whatnot. Um, you know, I, I, Adam Amin has been really kind of at the forefront the last couple of years talking about this stuff. And there was a recent article about him in the final feet of the women's final four, um, you know, his relationship with his father and their actually his family. They're from Karachi as well, where my family comes from. Um, in fact, I think I'm the only sports broadcaster who has both visited Karachi and called the game where Karachi Ito played, who played for Fresno State some years ago. Um, it, it, it's an interesting question because um, you, you get different perspectives on, you know, the old di- the diversity question. And I do think it could media in general, not just sports, could serve itself better by being a little bit more diverse. And I think it's getting in that direction. Um, but 
they're obviously people have certain preconceptions um and there's nothing again we go back to there's all that stuff you can't control right but um to me it's just about produce you know produce the product right if you go out and do a good job and are good at what you do you would think you could kind of move up and and, and the problem with something, with something like that, with getting upset about things like that, is you're never going to be able to prove it, you know, unless there's egregious situations. But um, were there jobs that I was passed over for that I felt that I should have gotten that somebody maybe with less experience got? Yeah, it's happened. But then I've also gotten some opportunities that maybe somebody else felt they should get. So it works both ways. Um, so I had a ex-girlfriend many years back who was of Vietnamese descent, and she okay. was a newspaper reporter. And she would be endlessly frustrated because she would get interviews at big market newspapers and never get a follow-up. But she's like, yep, it's just another EEO interview. Uh, has that been a thing you've had to deal with? You know, it, it's interesting. What's frustrating to me is they tell you, and it, it's generally true, like when you know people – it's not about the job, right? It's just about the people. So if you know that there was a job that I applied for three, two or three years ago, and it was a pretty significant power five level position, not a play-by-play job though. It was a different type of position. And it was like, I kind of knew the person who was kind of uh, spearheading the search, not necessarily doing the hiring. The hiring person was the next level up. And then I knew all the people already that if I were to have gotten the job that I would have been working with. So I'm like, okay, this is one of those things they tell you about, right? And if you hang out and you do your work right and you meet people, you'll be in this position. And then I knew, you know, listen, there's a number of people in the market. So it wasn't even about getting the job. That was like, okay, I'll get an interview here. And then I never even got an interview. And that's what was, was frustrating to me is like, you get me in the room and I'll make that sale. I'll convert that I'm in the room. But for some reason, I didn't get in the room. And the person who ended up getting the job had far less experience. And, and what frustrated me was not, you know, whatever. Lou Riggs teaches us this. He said, there are a hundred reasons you're going to get a job. And there are a hundred reasons you won't get a job. You can't dwell on it either, either way. But the person who ultimately got this job made it a point to go on social media and talk about how little experience they had in getting the job, you know? And I think it was just, I think it was honest. It was just kind of an honest reaction that they had. But let's just say, I mean, I was angry for about 10 seconds. And then I'm like, you know what? It is what it is. But there were other people who, in my position, who, like, to this day, four years later, are like, man, if I get a chance to get that person, I'm going to get that person. I'm like, come on, man. But it is what it is. Do you think it's to your advantage that you are – in Los Angeles, a very diverse market as opposed to, you know, a Midwest city like Milwaukee or Omaha that is much less diverse. Do you think that it's it's helpful for you and your career to be in a certain spot, or do you think that uh, it would be the same wherever you went? I, I think I'm a yeah. I think for somebody like myself, I would need to be. It, it, it's different for every person. Um, I would I I believe I'm a big market guy that if you my philosophy is you hang out in a big market long enough and people get to know you um and you get to do enough work it'll help you know and ultimately my future may not be in Los Angeles but I think 
Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, brought uh, markets like that shine a light on you a little bit wider than other other markets. And I, I know people, you know, who who took the other route and they seem very happy with it. I just think it just it, it gears to the individual. My lifestyle, I think, um, adheres better to being in a market like Los Angeles where I can go and do other things. Um, whereas if I'm in Lubbock, Texas, and it's about Texas Tech, I, everything's got to be about Texas Tech, that could be a little bit uh, claustrophobic. That can make me a little claustrophobic. Not nothing against Texas Tech. But I'm just using them as an example. Um, you know, I've had friends who've moved on from LA to different markets, and it's been a varied level of, varied level of. I mean, success is hard is a strong word, but you know, there are people who left LA to go to Market X, and are it's great. And then there are people who leave LA go to Market X, and like, well, work's great, but beyond work, you know, there's not much to do because you're used to the you know, hustle and bustle of being able to go various places. So. Um, I, I think it's different for everybody. And it, it's really interesting, Troy. Like somebody like yourself, you know, already married or somebody married with kids, it's a very different decision to make. And you know, and I, I it's funny because now that I talk to a lot of broadcasters, it's interesting because people will tell me, "Hey, if you hear of anything, let me know." And I'm thinking to myself, "Wow, this is a guy or a woman who's married with a couple of kids, and they're, you know, to move to LA with a family is a huge big. I mean, I was lucky. I'm I'm here, you know." Um, but to come in, the salary you'd probably make isn't what you'd think to be, have to go find a place and set your kids up in school and all that stuff. Um, it will be interesting, but I, yeah, I, I mean, to answer your question, I feel like I'm an LA, New York kind of a guy, uh, just, you know, from a realistic standpoint in terms of me trying to work, you know, I could, I think I could try like the Bay area might work. Houston might work for me markets like that, but I don't. I, w- I wouldn't not take a job in a market like Milwaukee, but my thought would be it would have to be the right situation with the right people who want to bring you over there. So our initial connection was made when you saw that I was talking about Vermilion, South Dakota on social media at some point. Your, your favorite city in South Dakota. That's where I was doing high school uh, play-by-play at the time. And you had a very near broadcast horror story in Vermilion. Go ahead and share it. I'll never call anything a broadcasting horror story simply because I have friends and family that actually work for a living, like in real work, you know. Well, way to blow up my entire bit that I do at the end of every podcast. But, um, uh, I, I, so my first year with CSUN men's basketball, we did a, we did, post we played in Nacogdoches, Texas against Stephen F. Austin and then we went and played the day of New Year, January 2nd the day after New Year's in the University of South Dakota, which as you know is in Vermilion, South Dakota. So complicated by the fact that my cousin at the time was also getting married. So there was a family event in Texas his wife's from Texas there was a family event in Texas the day after Christmas, and the ceremony in and of itself was on January 4th in New Jersey. Okay, So there, there's a couple of elements involved here. So I fly to Texas with my mom and my brother for Christmas. We hang out in Dallas. We go to the little family, you know, nice little event going on. Um, and then I, you know, I take mom and brother to the airport. They go fly back to New Jersey. 
I drive three hours to Nacogdoches. I call the game in Nacogdoches. And then um, with I, fl- I fly with the team. Uh, I bus with the team back to Dallas from where we fly to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And then bus to Vermilion. So my experience in Vermilion was uh, interesting in the sense that it was cold even for Vermilion. So the, I think we were there three days and it was below zero every day. And I remember the, the workers at the hotel, we were staying at the Holiday Inn Express in Vermilion. And the hotel workers were excited because Friday, which would have been the day after we were supposed to leave, was going to be 20 degrees. And they were all happy that it was going to be 20 degrees. Um my 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 sports information director that wanted there was a Chinese restaurant across the street, and he wanted Chinese food one day, and he he walked across the street to get the Chinese food, and came. By the time he came back, walking back across the street, the the, the food was frozen. <laughs> he had to thaw it in the microwave of the hotel. Um, we played the game on January second, and it was a heartbreaker. Lose by one point, a game they'd been in control all game. So we get back to the hotel. And as we're checking back into the room, our director of basketball operations comes to us and says, this is exactly what he said, do you want the bad news or do you want the worst news? And we said, okay, why don't we start with the bad news? Well, the bad news is our flight's canceled. We're not, our, there's a snowstorm going on and our flight's going to be canceled tomorrow. And it had been snowing all day, which I guess it tends to do in Vermilion. Um, and the worst news was they don't know when they're going to be able to get us out of there. Meaning, like we don't, we're we're kind of you know because as you know, what what is what is Sioux Falls about forty minutes from Vermilion? Is that about right? Uh, give or take. Okay, so thirty to forty minutes. We got to get to the airport first, and there's totally snowed in. And you know, me being the city boy that I am, it's not a large metropolitan airport the way that we're used to. So no, it's not. So uh. Now, here's our understanding is American Airlines is the flight that I took because I was flying to Dallas, right? DFW. That was the initiation of my trip. Um, so I normally don't. I normally like I have I have, uh, you know, mile, miles with United. I have miles with Alaska. I have miles with Southwest. American is just not on the list. So I don't have the like the relationship where I can leverage. Oh, I have this many thousand miles. Can you help me out? So I just call. And I say, here's my situation. I'm with this. I'm with the team, uh, the you know basketball, blah, blah blah. So they say, here's what we can do for you is we can get you out of we can get you out of South Dakota to Chicago, but the problem is all our issues are in Chicago. So you may very well be ended up stranded in Chicago. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the chance to go to Chicago, but to fly to Chicago, I have to fly. To, I have to fly out of Sioux City, Iowa which is probably about 100 miles from Vermilion, 120. Is that what it is, Logan? It's not that far. It's probably less than an hour. But, but on, in that weather, it might have been longer. Okay. Well, maybe you know, maybe I was just thinking I had to be there early, so maybe I'm thinking that. Anyway, so the first flight out is 6 in the morning. The good people at American Airlines did not charge me a change fee. They said, okay, if you can get to the airport for the 6 o'clock flight, we'll put you on the 6 o'clock flight. And... I go to the front desk at the the uh, Holiday Inn Express in, in Vermilion, South Dakota, and to arrange a quote unquote shuttle to the airport. There are no shuttles in in Vermilion. I said, "How do people get to the airport?" And they said, "They generally rent a car." You know, so at this point, it is midnight. I need to be at in Sioux City by four thirty in the morning 
and there's no mode to get there. So I go through the old yellow pages, and there's apparently a tax. There's a taxi service. What's name the cities around Vermilion? What are the the bigger cities around Vermilion? Yankton, probably. What's is there? Some, is there like a twin city to Yankton? No. Okay, so maybe it was Yankton. Maybe it was, there was uh, one, Elk Point. There, there was one taxi service available. Now this is, you know, was before like the Uber and Lyft revolution and whatnot. So I call out for a taxi, and uh, it's quite a bit because she's got to come like thirty miles, and then we got to go another seventy miles, you know, to the airport. So, but. I got to get out of there. So long story short, I did get out. Um, and, you know, and, and again, me being the city guy, I'm this, this lady shows, shows up and it's not a taxi, a formal taxi. It's a, it's a kind of like what would be now an Uber or Lyft, right? It's a woman who's driving her own car. And we're driving to the airport and she's telling me stories. And I'm, I'm wondering, is she trying to work me for my, you know, all the worst elements of my suspicion come out, but a lovely, lovely lady. Got me there. I get to the airport. I get, you know, I got to my cousin's wedding, and he just, he's married. You know, he got married, and he has actually just, they just, he and the wife just had their first baby. Um, I just saw a picture of him not not too long ago. But the funny thing of it was, well, not funny for funny for me, but not for them. I get to Sioux City, and the plane that takes me to Chicago, there are about twenty seats available on that plane, and um, the team. You know, the team coaches and the staff, they were all stuck in Vermilion for like another week. They didn't get out of there till the next week. So, um, you know, like four or five more days, like almost like four or five, because they had to play. We played on the second. The next game wasn't until the eighth, and they got back to L.A. on the sixth or the seventh. And I wonder if the airline was okay with getting me out because I'm one guy versus 20, you know, 12, 12 players, three coaches, a trainer, an SID, you know. It would have cost them more money to fly all those guys out. But uh, again, like I was flying Chicago to New Jersey. They would have been flying Chicago to Los Angeles. So I guess they were trying to get the team to Denver to get them out was the deal. So hmm. uh, that's my Vermilion story. It's one of the, you know, and I don't know if you have these. We have these great, you know, like career highlights. And everybody, you know, everybody's career highlight. Oh, I called an NCAA tournament game. Oh, I, I view it very differently. It's what makes you, you know, how does it make you feel? I mean, because calling a, a tournament or championship game is great, but that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's kind of, that's the job. Um, I'll tell you one of my, I, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this the first thing we did, but one of my career highlights came with the University of Hawaii. Um, obviously, being in Hawaii is a highlight in and of itself, but if you've not watched a game or, or been to a game or called a game at Hawaii, they're the team. That's the show in town, right? The Bows are the they're the professional team because they don't have professional sports in Honolulu, so everybody follows the Bows. It's a big deal. Um, and I remember being there, and it was packed. It's I bring this up now because we went this year, uh, meaning CSUN. CSUN men's basketball went this year, and it was senior night, so it was packed. Okay. And CSUN, we had a player named Lamine Genet. Lamine Genet was recently named an All-American. He was the player of the year in the Big West. And he was, you know, averaged like 25 points and 11 rebounds. He was the best player in the conference. And so in the first, early in the game, 
Lamine went and dunked the ball and was a little bit of a hot dog and the the crowd booed him. And so he comes, you know, like WWF style, the other end of the floor and kind of waves his arms as if to say, boo louder if you want, you know. Um, they ended up winning the game, so it was a nice deal for him. My situation was a few years ago. They have a tradition in uh, at the Sanchero Center where they line up. They have all these school kids come to the games. They line them up in the hallway, and the players run through the kids, and they high-five them going out of the arena. So, you know, this is a few minutes before the game, maybe 20 minutes before the game. They're lining the kids up outside, and the hallway outside is on the way to the press room. I'd forgotten something in the press room. So I run back to the press room. So as I'm going back, the players are kind of walking back into the locker room before they come out. So obviously they're going to cheer all the players. And then I start walking through in my nice CSUN, you know, polo, and they cheer. They start cheering too. But then somebody says, well, wait a minute. He's wearing a Northridge shirt. And they start to boo, you know. And that was the greatest thing in my life. I was in an opposing arena and I got booed. And then it's funny because on the way back out, they booed me again. But they're the little kid, you know, the little kids like who root for the heels in wrestling. They still came up and high five me, you know. And that was great for me because when I was their age, I would have been one of those kids. I would have been the guy rooting for the bad guy. So that was one of my. I, 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 I'm I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of not. That was one of the highlights of my broadcasting career to be booed by a hallway full of kids in the Stan Sheriff Center in Honolulu. Did they think you were a player? No, 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 no. They knew I was not a player, but they saw that I was wearing a CSUN polo. So I was wearing the enemy colors. So that therein lied the boo. When know? this is, uh, this was very early. I was still a student broadcaster, but uh, we did uh, an NAIA playoff football game for Morningside College based out of Sioux City, Iowa, your second favorite place. Right. And uh, that's where I went to school. <laughs> And we were playing in Helena, Montana, and they lost. And we drove to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and stayed overnight there. And me and a couple of the other seniors all went out because we're like, what are they going to do? Kick us off the team? And I wasn't even on the team. So I felt even less uh, pressure or of consequence. So we all went out, and I remember some bar owner gave us all free fleeces from it was called the mint bar in cheyenne wyoming and he asked everyone like what position they played and i said tight end as he went by (laughs) and that was when i was still in reasonable uh basketball shape and uh nobody said anything to narc me out they all made fun of me afterwards but uh, i i claimed to be the tight end once of the uh, morningside college football team when i would have been broken in half by the third string tight end on that team Again, they say they say it's all about if you can sell it. So, <laughs> so, uh, who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to uh, when you don't have a game that you just enjoy their their version of the craft? I mean, craft. There, yeah, they're guys you listen to for craft. I mean, anybody who says they don't like the power of Gus, I'm convinced is lying. You know, so. Irvine didn't have a football team, so when I got to grad school, I really got into UCLA football. And Gus Johnson on Pac-12 football is just amazing. I mean, is he maybe technically 100% all the way there? Maybe not, but man, he just – you know he loves what he's doing, and the game in front of him is what he's calling, and he just just does a great job of it. Um, You know, I'm an Iron Eagle guy. 
I remember Ian Eagle from when I was a kid, uh, you know, doing the Jets. Um, another old Jet broadcaster who I really enjoy is Bob Wischusen. He does uh, football, basketball for college football, college basketball on ESPN. And then he's still the radio voice for the Jets. And what I love about him is if you listen to him do radio versus listen to him do TV, it's it's almost this, it's two different guys, but he's exceptional on both. Um, I think you and I we talk about John Sadak, who I think is, is very, really, really very good. Um, uh, I enjoy listening to, to, to him work. Um, you know, I really enjoyed – it's funny because you worked for Westwood One. Because of the way my schedule was, I was traveling a lot during the tournament, uh, NCAA tournament for baseball. So I ended up consuming most of my NCAA tournament via Westwood One. So Kevin Kugler, I thought, did a fantastic job this year. Um, it you know, was, was phenomenal seeing seeing what he was describing while you're in the arena and how little he misses. It, he got almost everything. I was uh, I'd always been a fan of his, mostly because we're both from the Omaha area. But uh-huh. uh, now that I was able to kind of have his live feed broadcast going in time with what you're seeing on the floor, he was so on top of things. It was unbelievable. Um. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, John Ramey is a friend of mine. He's the voice in Nevada. And I always, you know, enjoy listening to, um, to Ramey. Uh, he does, does, this is a great job. Um, you know, Sadak, I, I made the comment last time we spoke. Like, whenever I listen to him, I always kind of steal something from him. He does a lot of good stuff uh, in terms of the description. Yeah. And he, you know, you don't miss much when you listen to him. Um, uh, there's a. I, I become friendly with Adrian Garcia Marquez. He's a guy in L.A. Here, he used to do the Lakers in Spanish. He was a Spanish broadcaster for the Lakers. The Lakers decided not to have a Spanish broadcast this year, unfortunately. But I think he moved over to the Chargers, which I didn't listen to. But like, I don't speak a lick of Spanish. I speak about twenty words of Spanish. But I would find myself if I was watching a Laker game, I would watch the Spanish broadcast of the Laker games because I love just his style and his flair and how he approached basketball. Um, so he's a guy. He's an LA guy. Um, trying to think, like locally, Brian Seaman uh, is one of the best to listen to. He's a Clippers radio guy right now, number one and on the list that you're on. He was, yeah, he was on, on number one on Tom's list. What was interesting is uh, to digress for a moment is I'm on the executive board of a of a, a broadcasting uh, group here in Southern California, Southern California Sports Broadcasters, and we do awards every year. And I vote for Brian every year and he never wins. And so I pulled the president of our of our of our organization aside. This is a gentleman named Chris Roberts, who did UCLA football and basketball for 25 years. And I said, I said, Chris, how can we not get how does how is Brian Steeman not a finalist every year? And Chris in this inimitable way turns to me and says, I don't know. I vote for him every year too, you know. So uh Brian, though, I think is going to end up Ralph Lawler, who's the longtime TV voice of the Clippers, is retired, retiring this year, retired, now the season's over. Um, but I believe Brian will get the opportunity to do television next year, and then the whole country will be able to see how good he really is. So, and I know you have some kind of, do you have a connection to Brian Seaman? Uh, I mean, I know he used to work in Minnesota, and I recently yeah. moved to Minnesota, but we have not connected, no. Okay. All right. Yeah. Brian's really good. I'm always leaving somebody out. You know, I want to give a shout out to, I mentioned the Lou Riggs class. One of my classmates in the Lou Riggs class was a woman named Christina Poncher. 
And Christina, great person. Um, she has been working for top rank boxing and you should have her on because she'd be great. She got a great story, but she recently has begun to do not recently. I mean, she's been doing play by play on boxing for at least a year now, and she's pretty good at it. She's really good. Um, and I know just kind of the, the back, you know, the, the work that she's put in. And in fact, she's, she's going to be on the Crawford con fight on ESPN, I believe, uh, tomorrow night, tonight or tomorrow night, I think it's t- tomorrow night. Um, but yeah, you know, it's always good to like people that you kind of came up with to have success. Another guy who was in the class with us, a guy named Keenan Singleton. I worked a couple of games with him. He's not a play-by-play guy per se, but he's a TV personality now in Cincinnati, and he just got his own show. So like they do those. I think he's with the C- he's with the CBS affiliate there. You know how like a lot of the local affiliates do that like weekend night the wrap-up show, and he's hosting his own show now. So it's always great to see people that you kind of came up with have that level of success. Um, and I'm just genuinely so happy for both of them. What's the best way for someone to reach out to you if they felt so inclined? I have a website, gazalhassan.com, and all my information's on there. Um, I mean, I'm a Twitter guy. You know this, Logan. I'm a Twitter guy. For some reason, I like Twitter. Um I just it's quick. I, I liked it better when it was 140 than then it's 280, but still pretty good. Um, you know, beep, it, whenever somebody sends me a message, it beeps my phone, so I, I'm alerted to it. Um, but yeah, I do the you know I do all the social media, the Facebook, the Instagram, and all that stuff. But I, I'm a Twitter like Twitter is like to me is like the radio of social media. So I like Twitter. All right. Well, we have gone for almost an hour and uh, a half, and. My wife wants to leave because we are recording this uh, the fr- on Good Friday, and we have the day off and are going to go visit some family here, and I was supposed to be done like 20 minutes ago, but the uh, conversation was good, so I just kept it going, and I appreciate you coming on. Hey, Logan, great to be on. You do a great job. Love the website, and I always refer, when a young broadcaster comes to me, I always refer them to your website. If not directly, I always tell them, say the damn score, so I, I appreciate you, the work you do. So much fun. It's always fun to chat with you. Once again, we are visiting with Ghazal Hassan. He is the basketball voice of CSUN, which is Cal State University Northridge, and he is the baseball voice of the University of California Riverside, among numerous other freelance opportunities. And Ghazal, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Logan. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of saythedamnscore.com. Also, please follow the Say the Damn Score podcast on the social media outlet of your choice. And remember, iTunes reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is greatly appreciated and helps make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know that they're appreciated for sharing their stories on the podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson. Thanks for listening, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.